And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Well, I told those of us who gathered here last week that God had a plan that prompted him to interject himself into the chaos of a godless existence. This week, some of the details of that magnificent plan become apparent to us from the pages of Scripture. An omnipotent and omniscient God could have spoken all of this into existence in six nanoseconds. It doesn't require hundreds of billions of years for God to create out of nothing. But when God speaks ten times in this chapter of the Bible, it hints at the next time he will speak ten times. And when God speaks repeatedly like this, it is with intention and it is with purpose. I thank you for the time to get away and connect with some of my pastoral friends from this region earlier this week. And you can thank Anne for bringing back the cold from Nebraska on Tuesday. Driving to a conference like this provides lots of windshield time. Now, it's been a long time since I've played the alphabet game, trying to spy letters in, in order of the alphabet on the signs or checking off the states on license plates. See, when, when farmers drive, they watch the crops. When ranchers drive, they watch the herds. When families drive, mama watches the children. And dad threatens them, don't make me pull this car over. But when preachers drive, we ruminate on the intricacies and relationships between ideas. And I knew before I left on Sunday 
that this week and next week would be focused on the way that God formed the earth and then how God filled the earth. Windshield time provides a lot of opportunity to contemplate why God divided the forming of the earth into two days as we read in today's text. As I contemplated the second day of creation, in my mind I summarized these three verses in this way. God created a place for planets. And when God created a place or a space for planets, the scripture tells us that he did it in a particular way. The first thing I read in verse 6 is that God separated the waters of the sky from the waters of the earth. And it made me think about the waters of the sky and the waters of the earth. And I began to think about the evaporation and the rain cycle. And God instituted two different bodies of waters that would exchange because I think God was addressing a problem before it existed. Two problems that continue to exist to this day are filtration. How do we get the impurities out of water? During evaporation, condensation, and rain, God filters the water. And secondly, we have a problem with distribution. Some places seem to have too much water. Other places don't have enough. And so through the process of evaporation, condensation, and rain, we see God distributing life-giving water. The rains fall, the water evaporates, it condensates, and then falls again. And the heating and the cooling of this cycle, along with the change in form from vapor to liquid, removes impurities so that the moisture that comes to us from heaven is generally a blessing. And the process of this cycle, while the earth is rotating, also means that the rain that falls on us generally did not evaporate from us. Someplace else it evaporated, it condensated, and then God gives it to us. It's a gracious way of taking from the abundance of the haves and giving to the need of the have-nots. Sometimes we're the haves and we have too much here in Chase County. Sometimes we're the have-nots and we seek God for his gracious waters. But God separated the two bodies for a purpose. And when God separated the waters, he set an expanse between them. And God set the space, the skies, the heavens between the bodies of water, I believe, to give us a sense of wonder. In our empirical scientific world, we have removed much of the wonder from the human experience. 
electric lights and thermostats have erased much of the rhythm and the appreciation that previous generations had for the heat and the light from the sky. I believe God wants us to to capture a sense of wonder in the sunrises and the sunsets. A couple weeks ago, one of my friends pointed out that when we look to the east in the morning, we often take notice of the sunrise. And the sunrise indicates that our earth is spinning into the effect of the sun that is already shining. And as we look at the light and we receive the warmth of that sun that is already shining, it it seems to us to be new light. And we watch the sunrise and it reminds us that there are new possibilities as God brings us into the influence and the effect of the sun. However, the beauty of a sunrise is often defined by clouds and particles in the sky that filter and diffuse different hues of light and different shades. And weather fronts work in such a way that the clouds that we observe in the east have already passed over us. And these clouds that have already passed over us reminds us that God has been faithful to us when those clouds passed over. So we look for the new opportunity and we celebrate God's faithfulness in the past opportunities and we recapture a sense of wonder every time we look at a sunrise. Once a month, I get the opportunity to drive south on Highway 177, and I generally encounter Katie Mays somewhere around Bazaar, depending on how quickly Axel gets around in the morning. But by the time I pass Katie on 177, I've already noticed the sun rising over the hills. I've already taken notice of the season of the pastures. And the reminder that God's mercy is new each and every morning. No matter what I did yesterday that required God's mercy, as the sun rises today, I am reminded reminded that He starts with a full and a fresh supply of mercy to extend to me, to meet my needs. But not only the sunrise and the sunset, I think we can capture a sense of wonder when we look at the the lunar eclipses, the shooting stars, the planetary alignments. They should all prompt us to recognize that our God's splendor, His creative greatness, and His intricate planning. Now, some of you, as you were to stare at the planets and the stars then begin to say, well, what about extraterrestrial life? Is there a possibility that God has put life on other planets? And we wonder. 
Now, my answer for that, I've not been to a planet that contains extraterrestrial life. And so I, I, I tend to filter that question through my theological understanding. And my theological understanding, as we just observe communion together, is would God have endured the anguish of the crucifixion if there were some other universe with inhabitants who did not rebel the way the first man and woman did. And for me, it, 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 it just makes no sense at all that God would send his son who would live a perfect life and die in excruciating torment if there were some other race of people somewhere who were in fellowship with him. So when I look at the cross of Jesus Christ, I I realize I am deducing, I'm connecting some dots. But I look at God's great sacrifice for us, and it leads me to believe there are no people elsewhere that he loves anymore. For him to do that for us tells me it's worthless to look for life on other planets. That's just a bonus I realize I'm speculating. Uh, the, uh, yes, we, we named our daughter with the initials E.T., but um, I do not believe in, in any extraterrestrial life, and that's one of the reasons I do that. Yet I still have a sense of wonder about the planets, the sunrise, the sunset. But this sense of wonder and our human need to control things makes me believe that today we are experiencing in space exploration a modern babble. Because we have this idea amongst our humanity that we will figure this out. Now, man stepped on the moon before I stepped into kindergarten. I have never been aware of a time that space travel has not been possible. I was in high school when the first vehicle began to leave our atmosphere, orbit the earth, and return to our atmosphere. Space travel is as natural to my generation as public aviation was to my grandparents'. And now, billionaires are flaunting their ability to permit ordinary civilians to experience zero gravity in space. A military branch targeting space has been established. And I consider the billions of dollars spent on NASA budget. And while it's generally less than 1% of the annual national budget, I can't help but think mankind is trying to master something that God chose to not put under man's dominion. We will look ahead at day six and we will see that God gave man dominion over the plants. God gave man dominion over the animals. We read nowhere that God gave man dominion over the weather or over the expanse between the waters.
When we get to the Tower of Babel later in a few chapters in Genesis, we will find mankind asserting his authority in ways that was never granted. Man is trying to improve through our superiority. We will become equal with the gods. And I can't help but think our attempts to rule space are driven by that same desire to be like the gods. But I told you that God separated the waters. And because God separated the waters, the separating act of God should tell us that since He did it before, we should not be surprised if He does it again. Matthew chapter 25 hints at a time that God will separate the sheep from the goats. That's one section of humanity from another section of humanity. Before God, He will be gathering all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God separated the waters. Matthew tells us that God will separate the peoples. And when God separates the people, there will be a lot of good old boys who will be surprised at how God separates the herd. God separated and God will separate. But for those who are in Christ, we don't have to fear separation. Because Romans chapter 8 asks the rhetorical question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer is given two verses later. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, read that with me, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has separated, God will separate, but that doesn't need to be a source of fear for those of us who are in Christ. Because not only has God separated and will God separate, but right now God is separating. Right now God is separating our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, which is what we just celebrated in sharing the bread and the wine. See, the heavens are not the only place we can observe God's majesty. Because after he separates waters into terrestrial and celestial, on day three, we go on to read that God creates a place, you're going to like this uh, alliteration, for plankton and plants. You don't know. See, that's why I needed that windshield time to try and come up with a P word to describe what God created in the seas. God creates a place for the plankton, 
of the seas and the plants of the earth. Because we read in verses 9 and 10 that God separated. He collected the seas to come together and dry land appeared. If, as I explained last week, Moses is recording these books while the Israelites are wasting for 40 years in the desert, in the tohu vabohu, then the abundance of dry land would not be viewed as a blessing. In the midst of a drought, we don't appreciate the dry land. They had dry. What they needed was water. And that's indicated in the many times that they murmured against God. We want water. We need water. When are you going to give us water? How are we going to get water? But to the ancients, the seas, not the water of a a stream, but the seas generally spoke of judgment or turmoil. As a matter of fact, we read that God separates or he provides safety from the turmoil. He provides dry land from the turmoil of the seas. And when he gathers together the um, dry land, that place of safety, that place that was under God's protection, we also see that um, God is providing for his people in the dry land. This week I watched a program about the pioneers who were heading west. And they found themselves moving from water to water. There's a reason that Cottonwood Falls was founded on the banks of the Cottonwood River in this place. And as the pioneers were moving, they would take a few days of rest, they would water the herd, they would figure out how to cross the river, and then they would push ahead to the next river. And for these pioneers, the waters provided both life after it was purified. And the waters also provided death. As the currents swept away excessive belongings. As the water caused sickness if it was consumed before boiling. For those who received the Torah, as God revealed it to Moses, a generation is passing away who had experienced a river at first as an obstacle. Then that river proved to be God's means of delivering them from Pharaoh's chariots. As the waters parted and they saw dry land appear... These people had never been so happy to see God provide dry land. And as the waters came back together and the river began to flow, they were never so happy to be safely on the dry land on the other side. Because the waters can be dangerous, the waters can be a sign of judgment, and the dry land can be a picture of God providing for safety 
from the turmoil. I also notice as God gathers together the dry land by separating the waters, he allows the land to produce vegetation. And vegetation that, notice, bears seeds and fruit. Now remember, there are no animals. There's no one to consume the fruit. Why would God produce vegetation that reproduces both seeds and fruit? Well, because seeds are are for reproduction. And so before the birds and the bees, God was already thinking about the need for reproduction and multiplication of the vegetation. As the spring burning starts in our pastures, I know several ranchers who are wondering why God gave the ability to those invasive species to bear seeds. But God did it for a reason. God had a plan. And God created the plants with the ability to reproduce and to multiply. But not only did God produce vegetation that produced seeds that did not rely upon the birds or the bees to to cross-pollinate, God caused vegetation that produced fruit. And the purpose of fruit is for consumption. But there were no animals yet. Before there were any animals who would need to eat the leaves, before there were any animals who would need the fruit for food, God had the forethought to create the rain cycle and the vegetation that animals would require. It's as if every time a challenge arises, what will we eat? God has already considered and provided the remedy. By the time man is created, God will, God will already have created meat so that man is not left to plant-based imitations. Amen? See, God provides the plants, God provides the meat, and then he produces man who's able to eat from all of it and to flourish. Because God on days two and three is producing or creating a space for the planets, a space for the plankton, a space for the plants, a space that will flourish and allow human beings to flourish. When I think about a flourishing place, I think about a Christian response to environmentalism. I've known a few expecting parents who take great care to prepare an appropriate nursery before bringing a child home from the hospital or delivering the child at home with a doula. Because parents desire a place where their new baby can sleep, be soothed, inquire and be stimulated, a place that is safe and contains the provisions that contribute to health. That's why moms nest, because they want to provide a safe place, and that is a reflection of the image of God. 
Because God creates a safe place before he ever puts a single animal or human onto the face of earth. See, God did that for us back on days two and three. On days four and five, he will stock the nursery with the the supplies that lead to flourishing. And we will see on day six that we are invited to cooperate with God in sustaining this flourishing environment for humans to flourish. Part of the mandate that we will receive is to care appropriately for the environment that God created. That we have been gifted clean water, fresh air, healthy food, and productive crops are our responsibility to partner with the good gift that God has given. We don't hug trees because of the tree. We steward the environment as a good gift from God, entrusted to us so that humans, God's image bearers, can flourish. And there is a call. I don't care if you vote red or blue. There is a call for us to steward well the earth that God has given to us. Because God has instituted a flourishing place. Now this history of planets and plants is not just for your knowledge. In this creative order, God is revealing that He had a design and a plan that are good. Because He has a plan, God has also creating a place for you. A lot of pastors and theologians have been debating throughout the current pandemic if online church is really church. And I'm guessing a survey of believers throughout history and in political environments where the underground church or the persecuted church are their only options, they may answer different than we would. Is online church really church? Uh, Just this week, my Twitter feed lit up when one man said, to say that online church is not church is to say that online shopping is not shopping. And then someone else spouted off, only if church is a retail commodity to be traded. Monday of this week, I spoke with my friend Janice Fast from Goddard, Kansas. And I spoke with Janice about her participation in an online outreach. Last November, many of you packed shoeboxes that were shipped overseas and will be given to children with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of you are aware that Samaritan's Purse provided an online option where you could shop from your phone or your computer and you could build a box that would bless a child. And Janice told me that she volunteered in the very warehouse that took those online orders and turned them into real shoeboxes that will be given to children. 
See, you don't have to spend much time with me to conclude that I believe technology is a valuable tool for the church. But technology can never replace the local church. I am thankful that we can provide live and archived video and audio streams of our services. I am grateful for every single person who is watching online right now. But watching our services is only part of what we do as a church to embody the message of Christ in Chase County. I am so thankful that we are allowed to encourage that people are instructed, that people are able to grow through technology. But sometimes you just got to look somebody in the eyes to experience that support and that nurture. I, I, I found that confrontation always happens better in person than it does online. You send off that ripping tweet or that ripping email or you send the text message and they can't see the compassion in your eyes. And it's misunderstood and it blows up and it becomes a problem. That's because I do believe that technology is a tool, but it never replaces the coming together as we do for worship, for growth, for service, for fellowship. God has created this place. He's created a place for you. God intends that we would come together as a people. God has always placed human beings within families. And I've got a great rant that I was going to talk about. God does not place babies in schools. God does not place babies in government institutions. God places babies in families. Because not only is the church important for us, our families are important for us. And I realize that God has many different types of families. But one thing I have concluded, every single human being required a contribution from a male and from a female. You did not come into being without a contribution from both sexes. Even if you have two mamas or you have two daddies, somewhere along the line, both genders came together. Because God intended to put people into families. Now, families can get really messy. I mean, we, we can look in the Bible, even in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we look at Jacob's family. Jacob had 12 sons by four different women, in addition to daughters, and the dysfunction of that family led some of the brothers to convince their dad that a wild animal had killed brother number 11, and then they sold him into slavery. Families are not always easy, but families are God's design. And God has a place for you. God has placed you within a family. God has a place for you because God has placed you within the church. God has always intended, from the very first time that Jesus began to call disciples, it is clear he did not call one disciple. He called a group of disciples because there's value of learning together. Whenever we read about the 
Um, the, the New Testament church, it's described as a body, as a place where gifts are demonstrated. I know a lot of very, very talented people. And I know people who have skills and talents that I do not have. This week I enjoyed watching two of our stewards work on projects so all of the doors in this place will actually open and close. And they were exerting dominion in ways that I don't know how. I needed them to contribute their knowledge and their skills. And they need me to contribute my knowledge and my skills. Because God has always placed believers within a body. Can you worship God by yourself? Absolutely. Can you study the Bible by yourself? Absolutely. But God has placed babies into families and God has placed believers into the church. Because we need each other. God created space before he created the stars and the planets. God created seas before he created fish. He created land and plants before he created animals. Whenever he creates something new, he had already prepared a place for it. And when you are born into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, He already has a place prepared where you can flourish. We call it the church, the body of Christ. You can survive alone. You won't get to heaven because you were a member of a church. You won't get to heaven because you took communion. You won't get to heaven because you were baptized. You won't get to heaven because you were dedicated. None of these have to do with your salvation. However, they have much to do with your thriving, your flourishing. God intends for you not just to survive, but to thrive. And to thrive, God has placed you in a family, and God places believers in a church. We kind of have a three-year-old tradition around this place. And that is that when we share together the bread and the wine as a picture of the body of Christ... We sing what a pleasure it is to be part of God's body. We sing, I am so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I'm going to invite you at this time to stand. If you are comfortable doing so, to join hands with those.